Well, it's been a quite a few weeks. Much of Europe's back in lockdown. The US, at least in parts, is heading that way too. Even Australia, which was doing so well, has new restrictions. In the US as well, there seems to be some manufactured uncertainty about something as simple as counting votes, let alone around the complex world of epidemiology and medical treatment for COVID. And is that that we're picking up on this week, uncertainty? We'll get an update on the latest WHO treatment guidelines, Rendesivir again. Also, there's been a trial in Denmark on masks, which may or may not answer some of our questions about wearing them. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor for the BMJ, and as always, I'm joined on the podcast by Helen MacDonald. Hi, Helen. Hi, Duncan. I'm Helen MacDonald, UK research editor at the BMJ and resting GP. And this week, we are joined by a Danish visitor, John Brodersen. John, can I get you to introduce yourself? Hello, my name is uh, John Brodersen. I'm a general practitioner uh, and I'm a professor at the University of Copenhagen. And uh, for avid listeners to the podcast, you might recognise John from our reporting from the Preventing Overdiagnosis Conference in Copenhagen. And we're joined again by special guest star, the youngest evidence podcaster out there, <laughs> Remy. <laughs> My approximately two and a half month old son. Hi, Remy. Hi, Remy. John, how are things in Denmark? I don't think we've heard very much uh, from your country. Do you have the same sort of divisions going on uh, in society around treatment and uh, wearing of masks and lockdowns and things? Yeah, I mean, uh, when autumn came in Denmark, uh, like the rest of Europe, our numbers uh, uh, rose. Uh, so we had more and more people uh, with positive uh, COVID testing. And um, uh, so we have had some uh, introductions of some restrictions. Uh, so in in autumn, we were told to wear face mask first in public transportation and then later in restaurants, uh, later again in supermarkets and other public places. And our restaurants have been, uh, been told to close uh, at uh, 10 p.m. in the evening. And then you probably also have heard about the mink case. We have. Yeah, you probably have. <laughs> and we have had um, seven municipalities in the north of Jutland that has been uh, t- uh, very restricted, with no, no travel between the municipalities and with uh, all restaurants closed down, only take away food and, and uh, uh, no, no public transportation. But it, it is opening again now and on Monday, North Jutland will be uh, as usual uh, and as the rest of the country. Great. Well, we're going to pick up on some of that mask wearing in a bit because there's been some really interesting work coming out of Denmark about that. Um, But Helen, as I said, uh, for a start, we're going to talk about new treatment guidelines from the WHO on COVID-19, including remdesivir. And I recall last time there was a weak recommendation for using remdesivir in treatment, um, but that's changed. What's what's going on? 
Yeah, well, I promised an update on this um, a few weeks back uh, based on the appearance of um, the Solidarity WHO's uh, trial as a preprint. And today we've got an update from Bram Roshwag, who's Methods Co-Chair of the WHO Living Guideline on COVID therapeutics. And he's also an ICU doctor. Um, it's published in the BMJ and it's linked to our living systematic review and network meta-analysis on the same topic. Um, and I spoke to Bram to ask him to explain why this new panel has made a weak or conditional recommendation against remdesivir um, when back in the summer um, things had perhaps seemed a bit more rosy for the drug. And when we did this and plugged Solidarity into this net living network meta-analysis is we found that looking at those outcomes of interest is that the effect had had changed whereas in the past we felt like if you remember we made a, a conditional recommendation for remdesivir mostly because we thought that it decreased the time to clinical improvement this was the the main outcome from the previous trials the act trial which was an american-led trial was the main outcome that drove the previous recommendation with a very uncertain effect on mortality which is probably an outcome that is even more important to patients and now having included the solidarity data, uh, that impact on time to clinical improvement was much less certain. It was not confirmed in subsequent trials. And I would say that we're even more uncertain in terms of the effect of remdesivir on uh, things like mortality, need for mechanical ventilation, and other outcomes that we thought were really important to patients. And it was seeing this, this no longer certain effect on time to clinical improvement, seeing a very uncertain effect on um, mortality, need for mechanical ventilation that really drove the panel to say, you know, if we're going to give a new, not very available, costly drug to patients with COVID, we want to see the fact that it works, that it, that it saves lives, that it benefits patients. There's no sense in administering a drug and, and diverting attention away from the things that can help unless there's proven benefit. And, you know, we only made a, a conditional or weak recommendation against, and that really acknowledges that there's a lot of ongoing uncertainty. And, you know, we went as far as saying in the in the guidance itself that trials should continue, that we don't have all the answers, and we should keep studying remdesivir in randomized controlled trials, especially looking at certain subgroups, because, uh, because we don't have uh, all the knowledge we'd need. But at least for the time being, our best guess, our best guidance is, is that we should not be using uh, remdesivir in the majority of patients. And I guess some people might find that surprising because solidarity seemed like quite a big study. And so feeling uncertain about it feels perhaps slightly dissatisfactory. And I noticed when I was looking through your um, summary of, of the data that a lot of the data is described as low certainty, which, which again felt surprising to me given that we'd had the ACT study and now we're adding in um, a good few hundred or thousand people from solidarity how how are things becoming less clear rather than more clear yeah it's a great question it's thousands from solidarity um that were added in you know i think there's a couple of things one is that these these big large platform trials and solidarity is a great example of one of those recovery is another great example another uk-led uh, uh trial uh they're fantastic and they're addressing important research questions in the setting of a pandemic but there are still important limitations to, to these platform trials. And, and Helen, I'd say one of the biggest ones is that they're not blinded. 
Uh, and because of some of the uh, issues around mobilizing these trials and looking at multiple interventions is that blinding is extremely challenging. What that means is that patients and uh, clinicians know what intervention the patients that are in the trials are getting. And, and that does introduce an element of, of bias. It can introduce an element of bias, at least, and something that we take into consideration um, when looking at the evidence base. So, you know, not to take away from these investigators' incredible work, uh, quick work in a pandemic, but uh, also realizing that there are potential limitations despite the huge numbers. The other side of that, I'd say, Helen, is, is that you can have incredibly well done RCTs with huge numbers, but still be left with uncertainty. And, and the way the trial was conducted is, is one factor that we consider. But there's other factors that we consider as well. You know, if you have, let's say, two or three really, really well done trials with huge numbers of patients, and those two or three trials show a consistent effect, well, that's a lot more reassuring. If those two or three really, really well done trials show an inconsistent effect, maybe one shows benefit and one shows harm, well, here's an example of really well done studies, but, but we're left in a situation of maybe some ongoing uncertainty because they show discrepant results. So, you know, those are a couple of the factors that are included when we judge based on grade criteria. And uh, specifically here, we, we were concerned about the possible risk of bias in, in some of the trials because of the lack of blinding. And we were also, when you look at that pooled data that comes from that network, living network meta-analysis that I talked about, is that our best guess is that there's no effect of remdesivir on mortality, a point estimate of 0.90, which was pretty close to one. But when you look at the confidence intervals, the 95% confidence intervals, they don't exclude important benefit, uh, an odds ratio of 0 0.70 or 29 fewer deaths per 1,000. Um, and they don't exclude important harm uh, in terms of an odds ratio 1.12 and 11 more deaths per 1,000. So because, again, even though they're well done trials, still there's some imprecision in the wide confidence intervals and still an uncertainty whether it actually could save lives, could harm. Our best guess is that there's no effect on, on mortality, but the, the possibilities uh, provide uh, low certainty evidence. So th there's lots of examples out there where you can still have incredibly well done data, but, but still be uh, uncertain or have a degree of uncertainty in the long run. And this is one of those situations. That's very helpful. The other thing which was quite intriguing is whether there was a subgroup effect or a group of patients for whom perhaps the recommendations um, should differ. Tell us a bit about how that um, was noticed and and how you dealt with that um, in the panel. Yeah, we spent a lot of time on on this actually amongst the panel. Um, if you uh, the solidarity trial recovery trial. Um, and the American-led ACT trial all enrolled varying severities of patients uh, with COVID, uh, including uh, both severe and critical patients uh, as per the WHO criteria. Critical mostly meaning those that would be in ICU, uh, severe and non-severe really looking at those that would be hospitalized but not requiring critical care. A lot of those that are requiring oxygen uh, therapy without ventilation. and. Um, uh, the Solidarity trial, in fact, is part of their publication, did a meta-analysis looking at remdesivir and actually uh, divided up based on this critical versus severe, non-severe groups. And they found that although there's an uncertain effect on mortality overall, if you look at the critically ill subgroup, maybe there's a signal for harm. And if you look at the severe, non-severe, i.e. those in hospital on oxygen, maybe there was a signal for benefit. 
And so we, what we, and this was reproduced when we did our subgroup analysis as part of the living uh, network meta-analysis. So what the panel was charged with was, is this subgroup effect believable enough that we think that it deserves subgroup recommendations, i.e. maybe a recommendation against in the critically ill and to consider perhaps a recommendation for in this severe, non-severe group. And so we used some of these tools that are available to evaluate how believable a subgroup effect is. You know, you already have low certainty evidence uh, in totality. And when you start carving up now into individual subgroups, the odds that these findings are due to chance alone increases. Um, which you can imagine uh, when you're already starting with low and then looking at uh, subsets. And so we, we applied some of these tools to try and decide how believable these subgroups uh, were, including looking at um, uh, statistical uh, signals. We looked at um, how clear these subgroups, there's, there's an arbitrariness about how we cut these subgroups and, and that impacted how believable it is. If we carved the subgroups one way, it looked like there was an effect. If we carved them another way, there wasn't. And it is, it, like I say, there is an arbitrary nature to this. Um, it's very rare when you look at interventions that the, uh, the same intervention in, in the same population might cause harm in one severity of illness and, and benefit in another severity of illness. That's, that's very uh, unlikely. Uh, we believe subgroup effects more if the authors were able to hypothesize the direction of effect ahead of time. So if the authors and investigators had the idea that, you know what, this is probably going to work better in, in severe and non-severe patients and, and maybe not work as well in critically ill patients. And, and we asked the authors, uh, investigators, and they in fact did not have this hypothesis ahead of time and were kind of surprised to see uh, these results. So, uh, and then the overall low certainty of evidence to start with. Uh, and, then, and then, like I say, looking at this, this subgroup from there, all of these factors sort of influence the panel that they think this, is, this, this was intriguing, hypothesis generating, but, but insufficient to make subgroup recommendations, insufficient to say, we're convinced that's it, it doesn't work in critically ill or, or it works in this other population. And, and the ultimate decision was to apply this conditional or weak recommendation against remdesivir to all patients now uh, of varying severity. Now, we, we stipulated that it probably had to be hospitalized patients in most jurisdictions, and that's because um, uh, remdesivir is administered intravenously. So we sort of set a conditional against in, in hospitalized patients because it's not so practical to give remdesivir to outpatients. Bram, that's been hugely helpful. Are you going to change your practice? I, uh, you know what, it, I think the, the use of remdesivir internationally has been quite uh, variable already. I know in places like the United States, it's being used very, very widely. I, I understand in the UK as well, it's used very widely. I'll tell you that in Canada, where I practice right now, we, we don't have uh, as much access to remdesivir and we haven't even in the last couple of months. So I have not been using remdesivir as part of my practice in the last couple of months. So this will be easy for me to change my practice because I'm already not using it. Well, that was surprisingly all clear to me, John, at the end of that. I thought I thought Bram did a really great job of uh, talking us through it. Um, do you have any reflections um, based on what you heard? Uh, <clears throat> my reflections are that uh, this is uh, full of uncertainty and I can easily understand why they give a weak recommendation against the use of, of this drug. Uh, because uh, there's no good evidence showing that it actually helps uh, uh, 
people. Uh, it doesn't lower the mortality. Mm. It's been, I think uncertainty has been one of those really interesting areas um, as the COVID pandemic has developed. And it was really nice to hear Bram and the and the team at the WHO obviously being very confident in sharing their uncertainty. But there has been this kind of trend, I think, within COVID for people expressing sort of opinions as as truth or having a degree <laughs> of fake certainty, a bit like fake news, fake certainty about um, either the facts or fake certainty about what we should do based on those facts and perhaps a lack of willingness to listen to other interpretations of the same science. And and the BMJ had this nice editorial published at the end of October, including George Davy Smith amongst its authors. Um, and it's well worth a read if you haven't had a look at it. Um, and I think I think Duncan, you've been involved in organising this this webinar that um, that the BMJ has been doing, in fact, today, Friday. So if you're very interested in uncertainty, and I have to confess that I find uncertainty quite intriguing. Um, you can you can catch up with some of the speakers there who who I think are talking on ranges of uncertainty and COVID going all the way through from the kind of basic epidemiology. How does it um, get transmitted um, through to how should we treat it? How should we prevent it? Yeah, um, so uh, loads going on. I'll put links in, um, in the podcast uh, text so people can see that because we're publishing everything. And uncertainty is often tied up with an area close to your heart, John, isn't it? With with overdiagnosis, and I, I wonder how, as a veteran of uncertainty, <laughs> you you look at the things that are happening um, in COVID and what thoughts it gives you. I I totally agree with the editorial and what you just said. That there's a lot of people in the media uh, talking about. COVID as though we have a lot of facts and and uh, and it's very black and white. And this is one problem. I think the greatest problem is actually that some experts in epidemiology or virology, they start talking about how people are behaving, how society is working. Uh, uh, so they actually go into other expertise areas and this is also mentioned in the editorial. So sort of straying from your core area of expertise into into new pastures I, new. <laughs> exactly. So, and I think, uh, at least in Denmark, what I see in the news here is that we lack uh, knowledge from anthropologists and sociologists and social science mm. to, uh, it's, it's physicians, it's biomedical people that are interviewed about the facts of COVID-19. And they and we even have people, uh, professors in virology or, or, or similar subjects that are blaming how the young people are behaving. And sorry, they are not experts in these areas. Uh, so there's, there's a really high tendency in society and among some specialists to, to know the truth to know the facts and we don't know it's full of uncertainty yeah there's a great line in that editorial uh the more certain someone is about covid19 the less you should uh, trust them and i suppose well, that's yeah. a nice simple message isn't it <laughs> or you could or you could say if you have a very simple answer to a very complex question you should never believe that answer got one of 
with those now. And this is why I wanted to invite you on, John, uh, put you on the hotspot. Um, so one area um, where perhaps uncertainty has been reduced somewhat, perhaps one of the most toxic uncertainties of um, COVID so far, the use of face masks, which feels like it's become even more toxic over this time of the of the US election, where it's almost become a kind of partisan um, issue. Um, but there's been this trial that's been underway in Denmark looking at whether masks work for some time. And we've heard from guests on this show, including Paul Glasgow, that we need more serious trials looking at behavioural environmental interventions. So that's a big tick in that box. We've looked at face masks. And when Carl and I discussed back in the spring or summer about um, the emerging observational data on face masks, we also discussed how much a trial might be able to contribute um, in this area and there didn't seem to be very many underway but there was this pragmatic public health trial underway in Denmark asking during the first wave of the um, COVID-19 pandemic there um, whether advice to wear a mask and supplying it reduced the risk of infections among individuals um, changing um, their likelihood of getting COVID either measured by an antibody test or a clinical diagnosis in in hospital following a, a PCR positive test and John this is this is why I wanted your brain a local Dane on the ground and an expert in uh, community medicine um, let's talk about it a bit more perhaps beginning with the research question what what could this trial answer and what could this trial sort of never answer for us uh, this trial could answer to Will I get any protection if I wear a mask as a healthy person? And most of the rest of society don't wear a mask because that was the situation. They randomized around 6,000 people where the around 3,000 were told to wear a mask and they were, and they were told, they were recommended to put on the mask when they left their home and take it off when they returned to their home. So it was not. It was not in specific situations. It was all the time outside your home. Wow, that's quite an ask as well. It's um, a, it's it's a, it's a, it's a big intervention. <laughs> but the way that this was constructed, in a way, it was a it was a slightly selfish question because this was about then looking to see whether you, as the individual, got infected. This was not looking more broadly across society as to whether this not only might protect you, but whether it might protect others. So stop you sort of transmitting the virus to other people. So I think that's an important, important thing to know. It was only going to answer half of that question. And and broadly, is this a good trial? Is it, is it well designed, um, well con- conducted? Can we sort of trust it at, at that level? Uh, it's a really well designed randomized control trial. It has low risk of bias. So in daily language, you would call it high quality evidence. Um, And it was going on in a very uh, specific situation in April, May in Denmark, where we had very, very few people putting on face masks themselves. And uh, it's face masks have not been, Danes have not been fan of face masks. And it was first in the autumn here when our uh, uh, government and uh, health authorities uh, recommended us or told us to put on masks uh, that they started to do this. So you've got a sort of good control group. We're not thinking that the people in the control group were doing much mask wearing. 
No, there was not. It was very, very few people. And it's it's only observations. But if when I was looking at my life in the, those months, the people I met with masks were old people, uh, fragile people. Uh, and, and my guess was that they had a lot of multimorbidity mm. or was vulnerable. And they looked at your infection around uh, a month later, wasn't it, after, after you were randomised? So re- relatively small time period, but arguably over a period of time where the infection w- was relatively common um, in yeah, Denmark. Yeah, there was, there was uh, around 2% in each arm uh, that were uh, having the infection, 1.8 in, in, in the intervention arm and 2.1% in in the control arm. So, so while you're so talking around, numbers, take take us on to the main finding. What 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 was the kind of the headline, if you like, in yeah, numbers? Uh, their their a priori hypothesis was that they could reduce the infection, but by what we call a relative risk reduction of fifty percent. So they they thought that they could go from two uh, percent having the infection to one percent having the infection. But what they found was that uh, 1.8 in the intervention arm that were told to put on masks had 1.8% of those had the infection. And in the control arm, it was 2.1%. And, and there's no statistical difference between these two numbers. And there's a huge uh, confidence interval around it. It goes from a protection rate of 1.2% to a an increased infection of 0.4%. So we have a whole kind of range of meanings that we could we could draw from this. We could say this was kind of a negative study. It didn't find a difference. We could say, looking at the confidence interval, which remains quite wide, this study would be both consistent with benefit of masks and harm of masks, albeit not um, to the degree that the authors were were perhaps um, hoping to find, because um, a 50% reduction is quite a lot. It, it, you could argue that people might find a reduction of less than that uh, meaningful or, or worthwhile. And that's just the primary outcome. There were a variety of other secondary outcomes both reported in the paper. And just having a look on the trial registry and comparing um, some of the other uh, secondary outcomes that the authors plan to look at there, or there doesn't seem to be having been through this paper relatively um, quickly, there do seem to be some outcomes that they plan to look at on the trial registry, which are not reported in this paper, or they must be buried uh, a bit deeper than I looked. Um, and they're quite interesting around the pros and cons of mask wearing, things like the psychological impact and also practical issues um, such as satisfaction um, with with mask wearing. Um, so hopefully um, we'll see those data emerge into the public domain because I think those things are also important um, features, particularly where the evidence perhaps is a bit uncertain. Um, I don't know, John, how do you view the overall interpretation of the study? They, 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 they are influenced by their hope uh, when the, in the in the article, because they find a 0.3 reduction, uh, and they translate that into a 15 to 20 percent relative risk reduction, and this is what is also written in the article that there might be this reduction, but they could just have, as well have written that there might be a harm of wearing masks, of a increased risk of more than 20 percent, or 
there might be a big reduction in around 50 to 60 percent. Mm. Uh, and this is all relative numbers. Mm. So um, we this trial uh, is a negative trial, and we can't say that face masks do not work, and we can't say that face masks work. So to fit with our theme, we remain uncertain. <laughs> we are uncertain, uh, and, and it's really a pity because Scandinavia has beautiful registers, and, and from this trial we should have continued to do pragmatic trials in our society. We should have randomized our two big cities when in the autumn and then have uh, told uh, this, the, the inhabitants in one of the cities to, to do all the interventions we are doing now, where we are told to have face masks on in public transportation, supermarkets, shops, uh, restaurants, etc. Uh, so all, all public places where there's a lot of people. And then we could have told the other town not to, to do this and then have uh, uh, randomly picked out some people and then looked at if they got the infection. So we could answer the second half of the question, uh, does face mask protect other people from being, uh, uh, from having the infection of COVID-19? Do you think equipoise had kind of been lost at that point? Yes. Uh, uh, and, and this is, yeah, this is always the case. It's also the case in, in I, I mean, in my own research area of overdiagnosis, uh, um, um, politicians, um, yeah, they don't dare to, uh, to, to, to use the, the actual situation we are in mm. and get us some good evidence. So and I guess it's I have, hard to take things back, isn't it? I mean, if you contrast our mm, first example of remdesivir mm, with this and we're saying, here's remdesivir, an expensive drug, it's not mm, um, been widely used for this condition um, or it isn't being widely used in, in some places and it is in others. Um, and the bur we're putting the burden of proof, sorry, we're putting the burden of proof on saying, show us evidence that it works. But mm -hmm. it feels like for masks now, um, they're much more out there um, and much more established. And it's it's hard to know what kind of evidence or what kind of question people actually will want the answer to, to, to alter their sort of entre entrenched perhaps if, views. If, if if the government and the health authorities in Denmark were really transparent and honest and and said that we do not know and we would really like to know, maybe the third wave when we get that next autumn, we could do this randomized city trial. Um, my guess is that we have started vaccination at that time and then then the discussion is different. Mm. Well, the um, vaccines is a whole other thing. And we were hoping <laughs> to bring you a bit <laughs> of certainty on that, but we really couldn't because we still don't have um, in the public domain, at least um, much much of the data to, to comment on any of the data, aside from what's been in the press releases, to the best of my knowledge. Mm. Yeah. But, but it's just to say, I think you're right. Uh, um, face masks are now uh, thought to be a good intervention or and and most people don't actually recognize the harms 
Um, there's a there's an article in the Danish uh, media today about uh, kindergartens. If if uh, parents should have masks on when they come with their kids in the morning and when they pick them up in the afternoon, because we know for sure that children have really difficulties reading uh, adults if if they, if they can't say see their faces uh, and and maybe you should use this Danish trial to say. Yeah, the uncertainty is the uncertainty is there. There's definitely not a very huge effect. So in certain areas where it could be harmful to have a mask, maybe we should uh, not be as strict in these areas. So I think that brings us to the end of this episode of Talk Evidence. Thank you very much, John Broderson, for joining us. Uh, as always, I'll put the links to the papers we've been talking about in the podcast text, so you can link through from there. Uh, everything that the BMJ is publishing on COVID continues to be free for access, uh, but I can't promise that of the other journals. While you're checking out those links, you could also rate and review us. It's sounds a bit cynical, but it really does help us stay up in the podcast charts and get that information about COVID-19 evidence out there. So that's it for this week. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. And uh, thank you for inviting me and goodbye from Denmark. Thanks, John. Take care out there.